Great to see you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at York Alliance. If we haven't met yet, it's because I haven't been around the last couple weeks, so it's great to be back with you. Uh, two weeks ago, I was sick. Really thankful for Jonas uh, jumping into. I think he maybe got me sick because he really wanted to preach that message, and I think he was like elbowing me out. So anyway, uh, but I, anyway, sick a couple weeks ago. Uh, last week, I was previously scheduled to be at uh, the Spring Grove Alliance Church, which was uh, lots of fun. Got to uh, be with them and rejoice with them. And so it's great to be back with you today. And so uh, if I haven't gotten to meet you yet, hopefully uh, we'll have a chance to do that soon. I uh, would love to be able to meet you even after the service. So please uh, come find me if, we can, uh, if you can do that. I would love to connect with you. All right, would you grab your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Uh, we are embarking on a fall practice series Simply called Preaching the Gospel. Isn't that a very fall-like graphic? It makes you feel like we're like ready for the cool, crisp air. I'm ready for the cool, crisp air at least. Uh, So we're going to step into this practice series on Preaching the Gospel. Let me just catch you up if you're uh, relatively new with us on uh, both of those two things, practice series and preaching the gospel. First of all, why practice series? Well, we do practice series on a regular basis, usually three or four times a year at York Alliance, some of them shorter, some of them longer. Because we believe that formation is not primarily a mental activity, but a holistic activity. God invites us into habits and rhythms with our bodies and minds and time and agendas that form us. All of the stuff around us is part of what forms us. And so we need to step into the practices because they form our habits in a way that can lead us towards Jesus. And specifically, we seek to model our lives after Jesus' life, not just what he believed, but how he lived. One of the things you'll hear me say a lot is you'll never get the life of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus. Jesus lived in certain rhythms, and he invites us into those rhythms as well. So that's why the practice series. But why preaching the gospel? Jesus preached the gospel, so the simple answer is that Jesus uh, was one who preached the gospel and then invited us to do the same, and so we practice as he did. But for some of you, uh, for some of us, for me, um, preaching the gospel can feel like a, a big step forward. Now, you may say, you preach the gospel every week. You stand up here and preach the gospel every week. Yeah, because um, if you're a public speaker and you're used to this, this is far easier than the preaching the gospel that this means, which is sitting um, with someone and having a, a one-on-one conversation. Those are way more challenging uh, steps that we take as we share our faith with the world around us. Uh, that's, a, that's a big step. Um, There's a guy named Stephen Bullivant who wrote a book called Nonverts a couple years ago, and it was really about the way that uh, Christianity is leaving America. And Bullivant said this, if a church doesn't inculcate its members, in its members, the feeling that what they have is something that's worth sharing with others, then it sends the message that perhaps it's not so essential for me either. Conversely, actively trying to evangelize others cements the value of it for oneself. In Bullivant's book, he's uh, using the Mormon church as a case study and basically saying, as we go out on mission, we, we, we take seriously the doctrine that we believe and it cements that doctrine in our heart if we share it with other people. So the question is, do we preach the gospel because it's pragmatic, meaning it, it helps. It, it helps us be better Christians. And while that is true... What I want to say to you is that is not just a bad motivation, it's actually not going to actually motivate you. Like, you can know that to be true, and you're still not going to do it. That's just the way it works. 
Um, in fact, many of you know that preaching the gospel, talking to other people about your faith, is core to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and you have gone years, some of us decades, without doing it. And so pragmatism isn't going to solve the problem. What about the fact that Jesus told us to do it? Like the end of each of the Gospels, Jesus says some version of what we call the Great Commission, where he says, go out into all the world and preach the Gospel. Go tell people about who I am. Uh, Lead them in the way. Disciple them, he says in Matthew chapter 28. But each of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have their own recording of Jesus saying, go out and preach the Gospel. So do we do it just because Jesus said to do it? And there's something to obedience. If he's Lord, we should do what he says, right? And again, that's not only true and a good motivation, it's unfortunately not enough of a motivation. Because I don't think it's a surprise to most of you that Jesus said you're supposed to go preach the gospel. And yet, most of us don't do it. If pragmatism doesn't get it, and obedience doesn't get it, why should we preach the gospel? Why a practice series on preaching the gospel? For most of us, the idea of preaching the gospel, of evangelism, is somewhere between offensive and terrifying. And that depends probably on your generation. So um, the older you are, the more you probably are on the terrifying side of the spectrum. But the younger you are, the more you are on the offensive side of the spectrum. The idea that going to someone and trying to convince them that what I believe is the right thing to believe, we have been told by a culture around us, is incredibly intolerant. Except, it's very interesting, there's lots of gospels that are being preached to you all the time. The gospel of upward mobility, you're hearing that gospel all the time. Uh, The gospel of uh, progressivism, you're you're hearing that gospel all the time. You're hearing uh, the gospel of self-sufficiency, the the gospel of individualism, the gospel of uh, liberal ideology or the gospel of conservative ideology. You're hearing all of those gospels all the time. And whether you're hearing someone speaking or you're on social media or whatever it is, people are trying to convince you that their right and their way of seeing the world is the right way to see the world, and yet, if you preach the gospel, that's considered to be intolerant. It's a little odd. The issue that we run into, I believe, is not primarily one that is cultural, and it's not primarily one that is fearful, that terror that comes with sharing the gospel with someone, but primarily one of misunderstanding, meaning I believe that we have been taught and assumed a poor understanding of the gospel, not a wrong understanding, but an incomplete understanding of the gospel in such a way that it becomes very difficult for us to share it. So at the beginning of this series, I want to take this week and next week to unpack what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't so that we might be able to share the gospel in a way that is uh, much more naturally a part of who we are. Because if you've learned nothing about spiritual formation so far, hopefully you have learned that if you are um, intellectually know that you're supposed to do something or you feel an obligation to do something, that is not going to make you do that thing. The desire to do something the, the desire to desire to do something 
At the core, we have to get all the way down underneath to have a love for and a right understanding of that thing if our behavior is ever going to change. And so that's what I want us to talk about. So let me start with a simple question. What's the gospel? We use that all the time. We use that word over and over and over again. Uh, you've heard me say it lots just this morning and uh, lots over the last however many years you've been listening to me preach. What's the gospel? Well, if we were going to take a microphone and go around and we were going to have you each share a very concise version of the gospel, what you would find, we won't do that. Some of you got really nervous right there, so don't worry. We don't have time anyway, but it would be fun, but there's no time. Um, what would happen is that you would find some, uh, some similarities. There would be some overlap, but there would also be, depending on your background, depending on uh, how you've engaged Christian thought and theology over uh, the last part of your life, there would be maybe 10 to 12 different versions of the gospel. We tend to hear the gospel in its simplest form as Jesus came to live the life that I couldn't live, to die the death that I deserve, so that he could bring me to God. In its simplest form, we have this idea that Jesus came as a sacrifice for our sins, and because he sacri- he's a sacrifice for our sins, we've been forgiven and invited into the presence of God. And, and please hear me, that is absolutely gloriously true, and it's not at all what Jesus preached when he preached the gospel. It's my belief, if we are going to come to Jesus' understanding of the gospel, we have to start with the way Jesus understood the gospel. If, if we don't start with the way that Jesus understood the gospel, it's very unlikely we're going to end up where Jesus understood the gospel, right? It, it, that just makes logical sense. And yet, Jesus used the word gospel quite a bit, and we very rarely mean the same thing that he meant. And so this morning, I want us to start with one of those places where Jesus used the word gospel. So we're in Mark chapter 1. Uh, Dave is going to come. He's going to read for us verses 14 to 20. And embedded in there, you're going to hear Jesus talk about the gospel and one specific verse we're going to dive into this morning. So listen as Dave reads. This is a reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Now after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. And, I will make you, I, and you will become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and then followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother, his brother, who were in the, in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The words of our Lord Jesus. Thank you, Dave. 
So I want you to zero in, if you're looking at your Bible, on verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We could take the rest of our time and just tear that sentence apart. In fact, I looked at maybe doing that this morning. We're going to do it slightly differently. But that's really the the heart of what Jesus is saying when he talks about the gospel. In other words, Israel's story that has been unfolding for centuries, Israel's story has come to this long-awaited climax. The time is at hand. Jesus is bringing the rule and reign of God the Father and everyone, everywhere is invited in. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Repent, turn, believe the gospel. There's two words that we're going to need to define if we're going to understand what Jesus said. The first one we've talked about is the gospel itself. We're going to look at the nature of gospel. And in order to understand gospel, we're going to have to look at the nature of the word kingdom. What did Jesus mean when he used the word kingdom? And then finally, the nature of the response that Jesus called for. The response that Jesus called for, we tend to see in a certain way, and I want to make the argument that Jesus saw it much more broadly than that. So the nature of the gospel, the nature of the kingdom, and the nature of the response. That's where we're going to be heading. The word gospel is the Greek word euangelion. It's uh, a word that where we get the word evangelize or the word uh, evangelical. And uh, that word was not primarily a religious word. So one of the problems that we have with the word gospel is that uh, we tend to see it as a religious word, and Jesus didn't see it as a religious word. It was actually a political word. So um, in, in the first century, that word, euangelion, was used as news that was uh, being spread about something that had changed within the, the political culture of the time. So let me give you an easy example. If you go back, this is going to recall high school history. How many of you passed high school history? Is that uh, not many? Okay, well, okay, a couple of you. That's good. Okay, okay. Okay, high school history. Uh, Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC. Some of you remember that. You read the Shakespeare play. You have some of it figured out. That's great. Julius Caesar was assassinated. And with the assassination of Julius Caesar, because he was, uh, they, they were concerned, the Senate was concerned that he was consolidating too much power and he was going to be uh, rule like an emperor. Um, by the way, that's really funny when you look at what happened to the Roman Empire after that. But anyway, they were concerned about that. And so they were concerned about that. There was this assassination of Julius Caesar. And that led into this civil war between uh, Brutus and Cassius and their faction that had uh, assassinated Julius Caesar. And uh, Caesar's adopted son, Octavius, and Mark Antony. So some of you remember those names. Uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra very famously were uh, part of this kind of clash. So there was this clash between these two factions. And Octavius and Mark Antony's faction won over Brutus's and Cassius's faction. But then uh, Mark Antony and Octavius had this clash. And this went on for a long time. But finally, in this massive battle at sea... Octavius defeats Mark Antony. Mark Antony and Cleopatra run away to Egypt and uh, have a a pretty rough demise. You can go figure all that stuff out on your own. Um, But Octavius is victorious. He actually changes his name to Caesar Augustus because that's like the big, broad, uh, 
uh, holy title. He literally saw himself as a son of God. Um, and you remember the name Caesar Augustus because uh, that's part of the biblical account of Jesus' birth during the time of Caesar Augustus. So Octavius uh, wins the battle at sea. After Octavius wins the battle at sea, a message is sent out to all of the Roman Empire that Octavius has won and that there is now an end to the civil war and there is a reign in Rome. That message is the euangelion. That's the the good news. This is a, a message that goes out that says to all of the Roman Empire, things have changed. It used to be like this, but now it's like this. It's different than it used to be. So this declaration of victory That's the good news. So when Jesus says the the time is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, the euangelion, what he's saying is there is a new way of seeing the world that has now changed, and because this has changed, we can enter into this new kingdom, this different kind of kingdom. So what I want you to hear when it comes to the gospel is that the, the nature of the gospel is not that we would convince people to believe what we believe but rather declare what is actually true. The gospel is simply a declaration of this has actually happened. You can enter into it or not, but this has actually happened. There is good news for you. If you find yourself trapped in a cycle of sin, if you find yourself in the midst of brokenness, if you find yourself in a situation that you can't figure out how to get out of, if you find yourself hopeless and longing for something that you could grab onto, Guess what? There's good news for you. That's the gospel. The gospel is not that I convince you of that. The gospel is this is actually true. And so you can enter into it or not enter into it. But this is good news about the kingdom of God. So the next term we need to define is what Jesus meant by kingdom. Because the nature of the good news is bound up in the nature of the kingdom, Jesus' understanding of what the kingdom was. So what is the kingdom, or uh, what Jesus spoke over and over again as the kingdom of God? This was really the theme of Jesus' teaching, was the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus, when he talked about the gospel, was not talking primarily about a specific aspect of the gospel accounts, where Jesus would die on a cross for our sin, but he was talking about a much broader understanding of the kingdom of God. What did he mean? Well, Dallas Willard talks about the kingdom of God as the effective will of God. That um, the, the way that we would understand kingdom is more verb than noun. So it's not so much um, a, a place and people as much as it's a, a reign. The reign of God may be a better way to, for us to envision the kingdom. The kingdom is everywhere where the will of God is done without question. That's the kingdom. So if you, if you take an earthly kingdom, the kingdom of Caesar Augustus was everywhere that the will of Caesar Augustus is done without question. So the Roman Empire are all places where the, the will of Caesar Augustus is done without question. The kingdom of God is a place where the will of God is done without question. So I want you to go back to the last two weeks and the story that we've unfolded over these last couple weeks. We talked about the story in four parts. The creation story can be maybe best understood as a kingdom story. When you look at Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, 
what you find is that there's a space where the effective will of God is done without question. God is the creator, and all that's unfolding in Genesis 1 and 2 is the effective will of God. And at the end of Genesis chapter 1, the invitation for men and women is that we would be co-rulers with God of his kingdom. So we've been invited into the work of filling the earth and subduing it, being part of that reign of God on earth. The Genesis 3 story then, if you understand the Genesis 1 and 2 story as a kingdom story, the Genesis 3 story is a rebellion in that kingdom. That our first father and mother made the determination that they would rather live in the kingdom of the snake because there was a concern that God in his kingdom was keeping something from them. There was some uh, kind of rebellion that, 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 that wells up within them because they, they want to have more than what God has given to them or different than what God has given to them. And in response to that, they're exiled from the garden. They're exiled from the kingdom of God. You understand Genesis 1 and 2 to be kingdom. The exile is out of the kingdom of God. Now what happens is that God, rather than just pushing them out and establishing his own kingdom, says that his desire is for the kingdom to continue to unfold to all of creation. And so he calls a a person, Abraham, who becomes his initial emissary of the kingdom. And he says, I'm going to develop a kingdom work through you. And so Israel, the nation of Israel, is developed as the, the saving work of God in the world, that the kingdom of God would come, come out through Israel. But of course what happens is that through Israel's cycles of rebellion, through not just Abraham and the people of Israel, but the prophets and the kings, over and over and over again, you see Israel not only failing to bring the kingdom... They're failing to even model the kingdom themselves, so much so that by the end of the Old Testament, what you have is the nation of Israel, who was the hope of God for the kingdom, being exiled to another kingdom. They're not even living in the land that God promised them because they've been unfaithful. And so at the beginning of the gospel accounts, the first four books of the New Testament, you have the nation of Israel exiled, and you have the people of God longing for the kingdom, but having no way of understanding how the kingdom would come about. And so their belief is that there's going to be a Messiah figure who's going to come and take charge of everything. So imagine what they heard when Jesus stands among them and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm the one bringing it. John, uh, Luke chapter 4, when he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the poor and healing for the sick and freedom for the captives. Like, th- there had to be this sense of a, like, ooh, this is, this is it. This has been, we've been waiting on this for all of these centuries and now Jesus has come. He's the one, but he's from Nazareth. And he said the kingdom of God is here and Rome is still ruling. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And in the same way, that redemption story that we hear lands the same way on us because we hear Jesus say, the good news is that the the effective reign, the effective will of God has come to you. You can simply enter into it. And we say, yeah, that's great, except there's still sickness and death and brokenness and sin and 
there's still all of this, like, what, what's going on? Like, how is it that the kingdom is here, and yet I look around and it doesn't look like the kingdom's here? What's, what's happening? This is your, uh, your very, your, your at least quarter, this may be like a whole dollar theological term for you today. Uh, the term that theologians use is inaugurated eschatology. Isn't that a great word? Inaugur- it's two words. Inaugurated eschatology. Uh, basically, what, what theologians are saying is that eschatology, the eschalon, the end time of the full, complete reign of God, has been inaugurated, has been begun in Christ. So what they say is, what Jesus is doing is making a declaration that says, the kingdom of God is at hand, is here, and unfolding in you and in me. We can enter into the kingdom of God. Remember, the kingdom of God is the place where the effective will of God is done. And so what Jesus says is, you can now enter into that. And Jesus died and rose again in order to give us new life through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that we could be the place where the kingdom of God dwells. Not perfectly, but progressively. Theologians call this the already and not yet of the kingdom. The kingdom is already here, and it's not yet fully here. But this idea of the kingdom is the way that we enter in to a new kind of reality through the love of Jesus for the world around us. And when Jesus taught about the kingdom in places like the Sermon on the Mount, he taught about this upside-down kind of kingdom where Love is king, not power. Where uh, service is king, not domination. And he says, you and I can enter into that and we can find what Jesus called the fullness of joy. That was one of the last things he said to his disciples, that they would be able to enter into the fullness of joy as they obey him. So as we enter into the kingdom work of God, in this upside down kind of kingdom, we enter into this place of joy, of the fullness of life, in the now, even though we live in the midst of a broken world. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. So the question is, how do we enter into that? What's the response that we have to that? Well, we've, uh, we hear Jesus' words, repent and believe. The, the way to respond is the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe. And uh, for most of us, I certainly have been in this camp for a long time, uh, there's a very narrow view of what repent and believe means. It basically means confess your sins and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And again, that's true, but it's not sufficient, and it's not what Jesus meant. Jesus used the word for repent that is the word change, and he's saying change, not just confess your sins, walk away from your sins, not just confess your sins, agree with God, which is the root of confession, but rather change your mind and your attitude, change the worldview that you're living in. Rather than living in the world that's dominated by sin, change to the kingdom of God, the the rule and the reign of God. So, So repent and believe, enter in with the wholeness of your body, not just your mind, but everything that you have. Enter into that new reign of God. So let me use a, a, an illustration. We'll go back to high school history. So uh, uh, Julius Caesar is assassinated in 44 BC. Octavius's victory at sea 
is 31 BC. So the Roman Empire for 13 years has been in unrest and civil war. There's been question as to who's going to win and who's going to be in charge and what's going to happen. Everybody's on different teams as they kind of figure this thing out. So when Octavius wins in 31 AD, is that good news? Well, it depends whose side you were on, right? Like, good news for some people, bad news for other people. Wasn't good news for Mark Antony, right? Like, so there's, there's news, but the question of whether it's good or not depends either on your previous disposition, where you on Octavius' side to start with, or your new disposition. You now have an opportunity to enter into the rule and reign of Octavius, to move away from whoever side that you were on to start with, and to submit yourself to the rule and reign of Octavius. That's not just mental, that's holistic. That's the way that you spend your money, that's the way you spend your time, that's the way you handle your property, that's the way that you use your relationships. All of these things that are part of life, they're submitted to the emperor, the king. So when Jesus says repent and believe, he's not saying believe a a specific thing in your mind and confess your sins. What he's saying is enter into a new way of living, a new worldview with your entire body so that everything in your life, your money and your time and your energies and your passions and your relationships and all the stuff that you have, your hopes and your dreams, all of it, are all submitted to this new kingdom because there's a kingdom that's unfolding. When we're invited to respond to the news of Jesus, we're invited to respond in a whole body, whole life kind of way. We live in a broken world, and we recognize in the midst of sickness, in the midst of death, in the midst of the world not being as it should, in the midst of a place where our past behavior or our past experience tends to dictate our present and predict our future, we say, that's no longer true of me. I'm entering in to the fullness of the kingdom of God. This isn't just a mental exercise. This is a life exercise where I step in to the beauty of what God's doing. I want to give you an N.T. Wright quote. It's long, but it's worth it. We're going to wrap up here. Um, In his book, Simply Good News, N.T. Wright says this, The good news is that the one true God has now taken charge of the world in and through Jesus and his death and resurrection. The ancient hopes have indeed been fulfilled, but in a way nobody imagined. The ancient sickness that had crippled the whole world and humans with it has been cured at last so that new life can rise up in its place. Life has come to life and is pouring out like a mighty river into the world in the form of a new power, the power of love. The good news was and is that all that has happened in and through Jesus, that one day it will happen completely and utterly to all of creation, and that we humans, every single one of us, whoever we are, can be caught up in that transformation here and now. That is the Christian gospel. What Wright is saying is hopefully trying to capture the breadth of the gospel, which is not just, I believe a certain thing, but is that God has done this work and we now have the opportunity, all of us, whatever our state, wherever we're at, whatever we're in the midst of, to enter into that reality. The gospel is news, not something to be convinced of. The kingdom 
is the effective will of God that you and I are allowed to step into through the sacrifice of Christ. And the response that we make is shifting our mind into the totality of the kingdom. Why do we preach the gospel? We preach the gospel because it's good news. We preach the gospel not because we're obligated to, not because pragmatically it'll make us better Christians. We preach the gospel in the same way that if you went to the best restaurant you've ever been to, or you read the best book you've ever read, or watched the best movie, or listened to the best album, you would want to tell people about it. That's what should come out of us in a right understanding of the gospel. C.S. Lewis is not going to be on the screen, but I want you to hear it. C.S. Lewis, in his reflection on the Psalms, he was thinking about praise and the way that uh, the psalmists uh, speak about praise. He, He says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. The praise completes the enjoyment. What he says is, if we really have enjoyed God that much, when we speak it out loud, it makes him all the more enjoyable. In the same way that if you go and eat at a great restaurant, it's wonderful, and you have this beautiful experience, but the the next thing you want to do is go tell somebody about it. Like, it was amazing. You should have seen it. You should have tasted it. It was so good. The heart of the gospel is that there's something that happened through Jesus. And as we enter into it, body and soul, it overflows out of us that we would complete the enjoyment of it by telling others about it. 